I don't know what it's like to be You don't know what it's like to be Great to be with you. I'm Dr. Michael Ferris. I'm looking forward to sharing this teaching with you this morning. I've entitled my teaching this morning, Getting Past Your Past, the key to walking in freedom. And I've developed the first part of this teaching from two parables that Jesus is teaching his followers both then and now. The first parable we'll find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, uh, verses 23 through 35. The second is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Now, we don't have time to go over them this morning. I'm not going to read them this morning, but I am going to summarize them for you in just a few moments. So before we jump into our teaching this morning, let's just pause for a moment. I want to commission our time together with a word of prayer. So bow your hearts with me. Father, uh, we have come into your courts with thanksgiving in our hearts, God. We thank you for this moment in time. I thank you for each person that is within the sound of my voice. Your word tells us that you know us, God. You know when we rise up and when we sit down. You know our thoughts from afar. You know our histories. You know every tear we've ever cried. You know the things that we struggle with in our daily life. And you know the teaching that I will be bringing this morning. And in your divine providence, you have choreographed our lives to come together for such a time as this. Father, I pray that this word that is shared this morning will be a word in season. That it will be what each person needs to just break any stronghold over their life and help them to walk more fully into the freedom that you, you died for us to have. So, Father, we commit our time to open our hearts, open our minds, that we can hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Okay, so, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, in chapter 5, in the first part of verse 13, this is God speaking, and he's speaking to his people about his people. Now, this is an important observation for us to make right here at the beginning, that God is speaking to his people about his people. And he's not talking here to atheists about atheists. He's not talking to Baal worshipers about Baal worship. He's not talking to the Stoics or the Gnostics or the philosophers of his day. He's talking to, to his people about his people. And in the first part of verse 13, he says, my people have gone into captivity for lack of knowledge. Now, some other translations will translate this verse. My people are led into exile because they do not have understanding. But the idea here is that there is a group of people, and they have been called and set apart by God, and they have been taken captive. They're held in bondage. They are exiled from what was God's perfect will for their life. Now, what is remarkable to me about this statement that God is making here is that he is making this statement about a covenant people. These were people who had a covenant relationship with God. What the Bible is showing us here is that you could have a covenant relationship with God and you can still be taken captive. You could have a covenant relationship with God and you can still remain in bondage. You could have a covenant relationship with God and you can still be exiled from God's perfect will for your life. Now, I meet people like this. I meet people like this all the time. People, they tell me they have a covenant relationship with God, and yet they remain in captivity. They remain in bondage, in bondage to their 
addictions, held captive by their depression and their fears and their anxieties, exiled from God's perfect will for their life because of their habits and their lusts. Why, you might not believe this one, but I have even met husbands and wives who will both claim that they have a covenant relationship with the very author of love himself, and yet together they manage to produce a marriage that is loveless. It is void of affection, held captive by anger and bitterness and jealousy and resentment and unforgiveness and lack of trust and distance and loneliness, and they ask God why. Why, they say, God, it's not supposed to be this way. No, it is not. It is not supposed to be that way. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 10, in verses 3 through 4, it says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. Now, this verse in Corinthians is telling us several things. It's telling us that there are two dimensions to this life that we live, that, that we have both a, a, there's a spiritual dimension and there is, there is a finite dimension in that we are both physical beings and we are spiritual beings. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, it tells us that when you die, your body's going to return to the dust from which it came. And your, that's your physical dimension, your finite dimension. And your, your spirit's going to return to God who sent it. That's our, our spiritual dimension, our infinite dimension. And this verse in Corinthians is telling us that we, we live within these two dimensions. And within this dual reality in which we live, the Bible is telling us that we are involved in a war. And although this war oftentimes, though not always, it finds its expression in the physical dimension, this is really a spiritual war. And this verse in Corinthians is telling us that we are involved in this war and that we need to be proactive in this war, that God has made provision for us to be victorious in this war, that God has given us weapons to fight with in this war. And these weapons are so powerful, they're so powerful, they can demolish strongholds. Now, What's a stronghold? A stronghold is anything that has a stronghold on your life and is preventing you from walking in the fullness of what Christ died for you to have. Now, I meet a lot of people who Christ died to set free, and yet they're still walking around in a yoke of bondage. They're still being held captive by the ways people have hurt them by the ways people have wounded them, have violated them, have betrayed them, have abandoned them, have disappointed them, have let them down. And they're still being held captive by these wounds. They're, they're still being affected by these wounds days and, and weeks and, and months. And for some, even years. And for some, even decades later. These wounds contaminate their life. They contaminate their relationships with other people. They contaminate their relationship with God. Now, remember, we are in a spiritual war. And in a spiritual war, spiritual weapons are used. Now, just like we have spiritual weapons that we fight against the devil with, so too the devil has spiritual weapons that he fights against us with. And for some reason, we just don't seem to think like that. 
And so this morning, I want to talk to you about two weapons, two weapons that the devil uses to keep you in bondage to your pain and to your past and to your other self-destructive emotions. Now, certainly the devil has more than two weapons, but it has been my observation that these two weapons, they seem to be the most common in the lives of people. They're the most common in the lives of Christians. And so I want to take a few moments this morning, and I want to uh, expose these two weapons for what they really are, and then I want to equip you to not only defeat them when they launch their attack against your life, I want to equip you to transcend them so that when you come out the other end of that battle, friend, you are going to be more than a conqueror. Come on, church. Don't you want to be more than a conqueror? <clears throat> now, the Bible has... Okay, in this spiritual warfare that we're in, okay, the way we defeat the devil in this area of, of our life, we need to launch a counterattack against him. And the weapon that God has given us to use against the devil comes in the form of a very powerful, a very Christ-like spiritual principle, and that is the spiritual principle of forgiveness. We need to understand that forgiveness is a powerful spiritual weapon that's designed to set you free. Now, the, the Bible has many examples of what these two weapons look like in real life. And so uh, I want to draw from the two uh, parables that I referred to earlier to, to tell you what these weapons look like. And then I want to talk to you about how to, to defeat them when they're launched against your life. So we're going to jump right in. Weapon number one, weapon number one is chronic anger. Chronic anger. Now let's understand something about anger. Anger is an emotion and it's given to us by God. And it's one of the attributes of God. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that. I'm not saying that God is angry, that God's an angry God. God's not an angry God. He tells us himself in, in, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, that he is slow to anger and he is abounding in love. But make no mistake about it, friend. God gets angry. Now, whenever we see God being described as angry in the scriptures, his anger is always seen in conjunction with his righteousness. Now, this is an important observation for us to make because what the Bible is showing us here is that God gives us anger to motivate us toward righteousness, not revenge. But in our fallen world and in our sinful hearts, we mismanage this attribute of God's, just like we mismanage all the other attributes of God, but God gives us anger to motivate us toward righteousness, not revenge. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, it says, In your anger, do not sin. Okay, so we see the Bible makes provision for us here to be angry, but it tells us not to let that anger turn into something that is sinful. Okay, so if it's okay for us to be angry, but we're not supposed to let that anger turn into something that's sinful, how is it supposed to find its expression in our life? It's supposed to motivate you toward righteousness, to becoming a difference maker in your world. It goes on to say, do not let the sun go down while you're angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. What the Bible is showing us here is that anger is a tool. It is a weapon that the devil uses to get a foothold in your life. Now, once the devil gets a foothold in your life, if you don't deal with that anger, that foothold is going to turn into a stronghold, and it's going to rob you of the victorious life that Jesus promises is available to you. So how does the devil take anger from having a foothold in your life to becoming a stronghold in your life? Well, to do this, he uses weapon number two. He does it through a very powerful process of seduction. He seduces you. He seduces you into thinking that you are better off holding on to your anger and managing it yourself. 
that by holding on to your anger, you are somehow going to be inflicting some form of punishment on the people you are angry at instead of using your anger to motivate you toward righteousness and to becoming a difference maker in your world. Now, the Bible has many examples of what these two weapons look like in real life, and I want to draw from the two parables I, I referred to earlier uh, to show you what these look like in real life so you'll be able to recognize them when they launch their attack against your life. And then I want to equip you to defeat them and transcend them. Now, I'm going to look at one parable for each spiritual weapon, one for unforgiveness and one for anger, and I'm not going to spend any time deconstructing these stories because we don't have time to do that this morning, and I want to get into the practical application part of this lesson. Okay, so the first weapon we saw was in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. Now, this is the story of the, the unmerciful servant. Now, here we see there is a servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. Now, this is an example of Jesus using biblical hyperbole here because 10,000 talents was more money than was in the national treasury in Jerusalem at that time. So what Jesus is doing here, he's using an extreme example to emphasize a point that this servant owed a debt he could not pay. So the master calls this servant in and he says to him, hey, I'm going through the books and I see you owe me a lot of money. It is time for you to repay this debt. And the servant says to his master, I can't do it. I don't have the money. And the master says, okay, this is how we're going to solve this problem. I'm going to sell you and I'm going to sell your wife. And I'm going to sell all of your children. And we don't know how many children he had. They had very large families in the ancient world, so he probably had a ton of kids. I'm going to sell all of your children, and I'm going to sell all of your assets. And then I'm going to apply the proceeds of these sales to your debt. Now, this servant is, is kind of gripped with fear. He understood the master had the legal right to do this. This was the master's legal prerogative. And he realizes now he's going to lose his wife. He's going to lose his kids. He's going to lose his lifestyle if he owed 10,000 talents. He was living a pretty luxurious life. He's going to lose it all. <clears throat> and so, gripped with fear, he falls to his knees. He begins begging his master to have mercy on him and to be patient with him. And he assures him he's going to pay him back. And the Bible says that the master had pity on his servant. Some other translations will translate this. He had compassion on his servant. And he, he canceled the debt. He just canceled it. This is incredible to me. He doesn't lower the interest rate. He doesn't renegotiate the terms of the loan. He cancels that, that zero balance. Well, this servant, obviously, he's really excited. And he goes out. Obviously, he's talking to people, telling other servants about his good fortune. And along the way, he bumps into a fellow servant who owed him what was the equivalent of four months' pay for a day laborer, four months of minimum wage. And he says to his fellow servant, he says, you owe me some money. It's time that you pay me back. Now, if you go back and you read this parable for yourself, you will see that the second servant does to the first servant the exact same thing that the first servant just did to the master. He falls to his knees. He begs him to have mercy on him and to be patient with him, and he assures him he's going to pay him back. But that first servant refuses, and he has that second servant thrown into prison. Now, some of his fellow servants saw what had happened. They, they saw the injustice here. So they go back to the master and they tell him what happened. And now the master calls that first servant in. And this is where things get really heavy. This is really going to challenge your theology right here. Because what happens is that master now, he 
reinstates that debt onto that servant. A debt that he formally forgave, that he formally canceled. He now takes it and he puts it back onto that servant. And he says to that servant, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant even as I had on you? And then it says, in anger, the master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back everything that he owed. Jesus goes on to say, this is how my heavenly father is going to treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. What Jesus is showing us here in this story is that we are that first servant. You see, we owe God a debt that we cannot repay. But God forgives us our debt because we ask him to. Now, even as the master had power to forgive his servant, so too the servant has power to forgive his fellow servant. Now, in the same way, we do not have the ability to pay back the debt that we owe God for the sins we've committed against him, but we do have the ability to forgive the debt that is owed to us for the sins that have been committed against us. Now, now look again here. It says, in anger, the master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back everything that he owed. Jesus goes on to say, this is how my heavenly father is going to treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Jesus is saying here that if you have an offense against someone and you do not forgive them, God's going to turn you over to the jailer. Okay, so what does that mean? I mean, what is a jailer? Think about it. A jailer is someone who holds you captive. They keep you a prisoner. They keep you exiled from living the life God intended you to live and the life you desire to live. What Jesus is showing us here is that when somebody does you wrong, if you do not forgive that person, that person, they will become the jailer in your life. And they will hold you captive, friend. They'll keep you a prisoner. You're going to be a prisoner to your pain and to your past and to your emotions, and you will be tortured. You're going to be tortured in your mind, uh, tortured in your thought life, tortured in your emotions. What Jesus is showing us here is that when you forgive someone, you are the one who continues to walk in freedom. Just think of how differently that first servant's life would have been if he just forgave his fellow servant of that small little debt. How different his life would have been. What Jesus is showing us here is that when you forgive someone, you're the one who continues to walk in freedom. Okay, the second, the second uh, parable I want us to look at is found in uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 15. This is the story of the lost son, often referred to as the prodigal son. And so here we see we've got a wealthy landowner, and he has two sons. And his younger son, he comes to his father and says, Dad, I'd like my share of the inheritance. And so his father divides his property. He gives his son his share of the inheritance. Now his son's got a lot of money. His son goes into a distant land. His son was just a partier. And he just partied, and he lost everything. He lost his whole inheritance. And in God's perfect timing, he sends a famine onto that land. And now this boy, who was once wealthy, is now in abject poverty. And he hires himself out to a, a pig farmer who sends him into the field to feed his pigs. He's feeding the pigs, and, and he's, he's wanting to eat that pig food. He's starving. And he, and he comes to his senses here. He hits rock bottom. Sometimes you've got to hit rock bottom before you come, don't you? And so this boy, he comes to his senses, 
And he realizes even the servants in my father's house have a better life than I do. So he's going to humble himself, go back to his dad, apologize, and ask if his dad will at least make him a servant. And so he goes back to his father. His father not only receives him back, but he reinstates him into the family. And then he kills the fattened calf, which was a big deal in the ancient world. And he throws a party to celebrate his son's return. Now, the older brother, he's been out in the field. He's been so faithful to the father all these years. He's coming home at the end of the day. He approaches the house. He can hear the singing, the music, the dancing. He can smell the aroma of fresh cooked meat in the air. He has no idea what's going on. And so he stops his servant. He says, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother has come home and your father's killed the fattened calf and he's throwing a feast to celebrate. And then it says the older brother became angry. He became angry and he refused to go in. He didn't want to go into that celebration. He didn't want to go into that house. He didn't want to be in the same room with his brother. He didn't want to see his brother. He didn't want to have to look at his brother. Hey, can you relate to that older brother? Have you ever been so mad at someone you didn't want to see them? You didn't want to be in the same room with them? You didn't even want to have to look at them? Can you relate to that? Well, look again at this older brother. What I want you to see here is that his anger was stopping him from going into the celebration. But it wasn't stopping the celebration. That was still going on. Now, most people, most Christians will spend most of their lives refusing to go to the celebration. They live outside of the fullness of what the Father has for them. They let their anger, their jealousies, their bitterness, their resentment keep them locked outside. But if you're going to go in and enjoy the celebration, then friend, you got to unlock the door that is separating you from all that the Father has for you. And there's only one key that can unlock that door. There's only one key. Going to church will not unlock that door. Reading your Bible will not let you in. Singing worship songs is not going to do it. These things all help pave the way. But there's only one key that can unlock that door. It is a key that is called forgiveness. Forgiveness is the only key that can unlock the door of anger and bitterness and jealousy and resentment and all the other fruits that go along with anger and unforgiveness. Now understand this. You can still love Jesus and have anger and unforgiveness in your heart. Of course you can. You're just not going to have the abundant life that Jesus promises you. You're going to be like the older brother here in Luke's gospel. You'll still be in the family. You're just not going to be in the house. You're going to be like the people in Isaiah 5.13. You'll still be a covenant person. You're just going to remain in captivity. Exiled from the fullness of what the Father has for you. So, so how do you break this stronghold then? How do you break this stronghold that chronic anger and unforgiveness has on your life? Now remember Isaiah 5.13. God said, my people remain in captivity for lack of knowledge, for lack of understanding. So you've got to begin by getting the right kind of knowledge and the right kind of understanding. And you begin by understanding that chronic anger and unforgiveness are actually spiritual weapons that the devil has been using against you, not the people who've hurt you. See, you think you're using your anger and unforgiveness against the people who've hurt you. But friend, if you're holding on to anger and unforgiveness because of some offense in the past, 
then the devil's really been using that against you. So understand this, that God is very capable of breaking uh, the strongholds that chronic anger and unforgiveness has on your life. But if you want God to do his part in breaking the strongholds that chronic anger and unforgiveness has on your life, then friend, you got to be willing to do your part. And this is where Christians fall down. See, they want God to do his part. They just don't want to do their part. Okay, so what's your part? What's your part in breaking the stronghold that chronic anger and unforgiveness has on your life? I'm going to give you four things that you can do. Now, the first two things, if you are a Christ follower, these may be very familiar to you. You may be practicing, practice, practicing them already. So I'm not going to spend really any time on them. I'm just going to kind of mention them to you. However, the second two... Um, these may be new for most of you, so I'm going to spend a little more time on the second two. But here we are, four things that you can do. Number one is you want to practice living in an attitude of prayer. Practice living in an attitude of prayer. Don't just pray. Practice living in an attitude of prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17 tells us we're to pray continually. Now, some other translations will translate this verse. We're to pray without ceasing. Okay, what does this mean? It doesn't mean you walk around saying the Our Father all day. It doesn't mean that. You see, most people, when they're not actively engaged in a dialogue with another person, they will maintain an ongoing commentary with themselves. We talk to ourselves. And listen, I'm going to tell you as a psychologist, it's okay that you talk to yourself. I'll even say it's okay if you answer yourself. You can do that too. But listen, if you ever say, now what did I mean by that? Then call me because you've got a problem. Okay, but, but the idea here is we invite God into this commentary. We need to raise our level of spiritual awareness. And we need to understand that God is at work in every situation, every circumstance in our life, trying to conform us to the image of his son. And when thoughts of those offenses come to our mind, we invite God into this commentary, asking God to help us forgive that person, those people, for those offenses. And if you, if you saw the, the teaching I do with the journey to the potter's house, we understand that forgiveness doesn't mean you've gotten over something. We understand that you cannot forgive and forget physiologically, but forgiveness to the Christian means you let it go and you trust God will vindicate you. So the first thing you need to do, you practice living in an attitude of prayer. Number two, build yourself an inventory of scriptures that you can draw strength from around your issue. Now listen, every sin that has ever been committed against humankind, every heartache, every disappointment, you're going to find it in the Bible. So here's a concept for you. Read your Bible. You read your Bible, and you, you see these stories, and when you find these stories that relate to the issues that you've been struggling with, you see how God shows up and how he intervenes uh, in, those, in those stories, and then you appropriate those scriptures. You memorize them so you can incorporate them into your prayer life as you're living in an attitude of prayer. Now, I meet a lot of people who tell me they do these two things. They pray continually. They've memorized so many scriptures, but they still can't seem to get past their past. They still can't seem to break the stronghold the past has had on their life. And I believe it is because they do not do these next two things that I'm going to be telling you about. Now, in preparing you for point number three, you need to understand that wherever there is emotional pain in your life, there is always going to be loss. Wherever there's emotional pain in your life, there's always going to be loss. Now, all of us have losses in our lives. All of us do. Maybe you've lost a loved one through death, whether that death was anticipated or came as an earth-shattering surprise. Maybe you lost a pregnancy because of a miscarriage or an abortion. Uh, 
Maybe you lost a marriage because of a divorce. Maybe you lost a friendship because of a betrayal. Maybe you lost your integrity because you made some bad choices. Maybe you lost your childhood because you grew up in a, in a home that didn't allow you to have one. All of us have losses in our life. Now, we need to understand that every loss always has associated losses that go with it. And, and it is these associated losses that have tentacles that wrap themselves around your heart. They wrap themselves around your mind. They wrap themselves around your psyche. And these are the things that hold you back. You see, when you think of loss issues, you think of one of these major things. But it is these associated losses that hold you back. You're trying to go forward with your life. You're trying to go forward in your relationships. But you just can't seem to get to the next level. It is these associated losses that you need to attend to. And so if these losses are going to be transcended, then they need to be identified and they need to be mourned. And this is point number three. You need to identify and mourn your losses. Now, when you hear people talk about loss issues, maybe you've done some work around loss or you've counseled others around loss, you'll often hear them say things like, well, you need to grieve your losses or you need to mourn your losses. And they use these two words, grieving and mourning, interchangeably as if they mean the same thing. But it is important to understand that clinically, these two words do not mean the same thing. And this is an important distinction to understand because this is one of the places people will get stuck. So let me give you a definition uh, that will help you get unstuck. So by way of definition, Grief is a person's reaction to loss. Grief is a person's reaction to loss. Now, a grief reaction can sustain itself over time. It's not like you have this loss issue and then a few days you're over it. No, a grief re reaction can sustain itself for days, for weeks, for months, depending on the magnitude of that loss, even a year, even, a, even as close to two years. But if a grief reaction goes much beyond two minutes, then it goes into something a little more clinically significant something that we would call disenfranchised grief or complicated mourning, which goes beyond the scope of our lesson this morning. Uh, but suffice it to say, by way of definition, grief is a person's reaction to loss. Mourning, on the other hand, is the process of adapting to that loss. So grief is a person's reaction to loss. Mourning is the process of adapting to that loss. Now, the concept of mourning, it is a linear one, but the process of mourning, it is a circular one. And this is a really important distinction to understand. Okay, it's linear in that it takes time. It just takes time for a process to work itself through. It's circular in, I want you to, I want you to think of like a spiral with a concentric circle. And the further away from the center, the bigger the spiral gets, okay? Now, I'm going to use this piece of paper here. As to help illustrate this, this piece of paper represents the loss issue in your life, okay? Loss of a friendship, loss of a loved one, loss of a marriage, loss of a childhood, whatever the loss is. Okay, so we go through life and we encounter something painful. Now, when we encounter something painful, all we, we want to do is we want to get to the other side of it. As we're going through this, we're not thinking, what are the life lessons I can learn? We don't do that till sometime later when we look back. So you're going through something painful. Your brain employs certain chemicals that put you into the survival mode. You just want to get through it. So you get to the other side of it. You say, praise God, it's behind me. Now I'm going to make a spiral. And the line in the spiral, this represents linear time. Okay, so time is going by and you're feeling, yeah, it's good. You're, you're behind it now. It's behind you. And all of a sudden, one day, boom, you bump into it again. And you say, I, I, I thought I went through this already. Well, you did for as much as you were able to. You see, all of us have different pain tolerances. We can only handle so much pain. And so what you do is when you're going some, through something painful, you're just handling what you can handle. 
And so you, you, you work your way through this, you get to the other side. Now as time goes by, you're becoming fortified, emotionally fortified, you get stronger. When you hit this again, I believe if you are a Christ follower, this is God bringing you to this place. And he's saying to you, there is more healing work that needs to be done. It doesn't mean you go back and you, you work through everything you went through the first time because you already worked through it. But what it does mean is now you're able to work through aspects of this loss you were not able to the first time you went through it because it was all too much painful. So you've done some healing. You've gotten stronger. God's saying, come on, let's do some more work and get through this. But, but let me illustrate here something that happens. <clears throat> let's say if you've... If you've Say you're cooking on your stove top, and you've got several pots going, and you reach over and you burn your hand on the stove. Okay, what do you do when you burn your hand on the stove? You don't sit there and keep your hand on the burner saying, wow, that really hurts. It's really hurting me now. No, what do you do? Whoa, right? You, you pull your hand back. Soon as you feel that pain, whoa, you pull your hand back. This is the human reaction to pain. We do it physically. We also do it emotionally. So what happens here, this is what you, I see people do, what happens is you've got through this painful thing, time has gone by, you're feeling like it's behind you, and then boom, one day you hit it, and what's the human reaction to pain? You pull away from it. And if you remember, for those of you who saw the pottery illustration, I said if we don't heal with our pain, we're, we're going to do three things with it. Uh, the first thing, you organize your life around your pain. Okay, and right here, this is where this is going to happen, right here. Once, once you hit this and pull away, right here, your life just got really small right now. And this is where you're going to stay a prisoner to your past. And so, but what if, if you're bumping into this, God is saying, come on, I'm with you. God isn't going to bring you to this place and abandon you and leave you here. He says, come on, it's time for you to work through and do some more healing because God wants you to have a healed whole life so you can walk life out in shalom, in peace with God and, and those around you. So now you work through other aspects of this loss. You get to the other side, but praise God, I'm through it. Life goes by, and then all of a sudden one day, boom, I thought I dealt you did for as much as you were able to. But listen, if you're hitting this again, this is God's way of saying, come on, there's more work that needs to be done. There's more healing that has to take place. You're going to work through it, get to the other side. Come around. I thought I did. You did. You worked through it until ultimately, look, ultimately, ultimately one day, you're not going to bump into it anymore. This now, this becomes assimilated into your life. It's part of your history. Listen, we can't change our past. We can't change our past. You only have two options for your past. You're going to stay a prisoner to it, or you're going to transcend it. If you hit it and you go back like that, if you refuse to do your work, you're going to remain a prisoner to your past. If God is bringing you to this place, he's saying, come on, I got more, I got more to life for you than just this. And so you're going to keep working. Okay, now this circular process where you go around, you hit it, you work through, you go that's the way I'm trying to graphically illustrate what the mourning process looks like. Now, if this mourning process is going to be successful, there are seven things that have to happen. Seven things that you've got to work through as you go through this like this. And let me give them to you kind of quickly. Number one, uh, you need to accept the reality of your loss. You need to accept the reality of what happens. And accepting a reality is very difficult sometimes. Easier said than done, especially if you don't want to accept a reality. When you meet somebody who refuses to accept a reality, what do you say of that person? You say, they're living in denial. They're living in denial. You don't want to live in denial. There's no future living in denial. So you need to accept the reality of your loss. The second thing you've got to do, you need to process the pain of that loss. Now, this is where you're going to experience a potpourri of emotions, and it is really good not to do this thing alone because you cannot process your pain objectively because you're in a subjective relationship to it. 
And when you're in a subjective relationship towards something, you cannot think objectively. It is by virtue of the nature of the relationship. So this is where you want to get a friend, a confidant, a counselor, a pastor, a guide, someone who's going to guard your heart, someone who's going to keep your, your integrity. They're not going to talk about you and not going to tell your story, and they're going to help you process this pain. Okay, the third thing you need to do, you need to adjust your world to that loss. Now, in adjusting your world, there are three areas of adjustment that you need to attend to. Versus externally, how does this loss affect your everyday functioning in the world? It just does. The second is internally. How does this loss affect your sense of self? How you come to understand who you are as a person? And three is spiritually. Even if you don't believe in God, you still have to address the spiritual dimension of your life. Now, this is where you have to ask God some very hard questions. This is where you have to ask God really hard questions, and you've got to be satisfied with those answers. This is where you're going to ask God questions like, God, if, if children are so sacred to you, then why was I molested for five years of my young life? God, if the unborn are so sacred, why didn't you stop my first abortion? Why didn't you stop my second, third, or fourth? If marriage is this sacred covenant designed by you, why did mine end in divorce? If family is this great institution that was established by God, why did I grow up in one that was so dysfunctional, it robbed me of a childhood and messed me up in my adult life? This is where you have to ask God the hard questions, and you must be satisfied with the answers. If you're not, you're not going to go past this point. Okay, <clears throat> the, the fourth thing under point number three, A, B, C, D, this would be D. This is where you're going to get your breakthrough. Uh, you need to identify a transcendent purpose for your loss. You need to identify a transcendent purpose for your loss. Now, this is where you're going to sow your loss as a spiritual seed. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 6, flesh begets flesh and spirit begets spirit. That which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. If you want to reap a spiritual harvest for your life, you've got to sow a spiritual seed. And so you take this loss and you say, God, I'm going to give this to you. I don't want my suffering to go to waste. God will never waste your suffering if you give it to him. You're going to waste it, trying to manage it yourself. And so you say, God, I don't want my suffering to go to waste. I'm going to sow this as a spiritual seed, and I want you to give me a harvest for this thing. Okay, the, the fourth thing. So uh, we live in an attitude of prayer. Build yourself an inventory of scriptures. Identify and mourn your losses. The fourth thing is you need to visualize yourself. We can all visualize. God has given us the ability to do that. You visualize yourself forgiving the people, the person, the event that, that wounded your soul. See yourself releasing it to the Lord, whatever that looks like for you. You can see yourself taking, laying it down at the foot of the cross. You do whatever you have to do, but you have to visualize yourself doing it. It activates certain physiological things in your brain. It releases chemicals. It really does affect you in a physiological way. So you need to visualize yourself taking that offense, the people that offended you, see yourself putting them down at the foot of the cross, lifting them up to heaven, having God come taken from you, whatever works for you. But you've got to see yourself releasing that offense to the Lord. Now let me explain why forgiveness is so powerful and so important. As we go through life, we establish relationships with other people. Now, the strength of those relationships is determined by the emotional connection we have with those people. The stronger the emotional connection, the stronger the relationship. Now, it's important to understand that, that anger is not a thought. Anger is not a thought. We think thoughts, and those thoughts make us angry. But anger is an emotion. Now, when you stay angry at someone, 
by virtue of the fact you're staying angry at them, you're staying emotionally connected to that person. This is why you can feel like somebody who hurt you some time ago and is now lo no longer in your life still has some kind of control over your life. I was talking to a woman once and she, she was telling me she used to be married to a man that used to beat her up. He used to beat her up physically. He used to beat her up emotionally. And then one day she mustered the courage and, and she divorced this man. Several years after they were divorced, he was killed in a car accident. When I was talking with this woman, she said to me, he has been dead for 10 years now. And yet every day of my life, I still feel like he's controlling me. Wow. He's been dead for 10 years, yet every day of my life, I still feel like he's controlling me. I said, there's two reasons for that. First, you've never attended to the associated losses that were associated with the loss of that marriage. And the second thing you're telling me is that you are still angry at your husband. She said, oh, yes, I am. I mean, she's like, she's ready to fight. Oh, yes, I am. I said, that's the reason he's controlling your life. He's been dead and gone for 10 years, but every day you dig him up out of the grave, you resurrect him, and you are keeping yourself emotionally connected to him through your anger. So if you want to be set free from the pain of your past, then, then you've got to sever the connection, the emotional connection that you have with those aspects of your past, even if that emotional connection is one of anger. And the weapon that God gives us to sever that connection is the spiritual weapon of forgiveness. Now, some people will say they don't want to forgive because they don't want to be hurt again, and that's fair. That's fair. But what we have to understand is that forgiveness doesn't mean you open yourself up to being vulnerable again. It doesn't mean that. One very important part of forgiveness is the establishment of boundaries in your life. Listen, people are only going to treat you the way you give them permission to treat you, period, end of sentence. If somebody doesn't treat you right the first time, that's their issue, and you need to talk to them, and you need to teach them how to treat you. But if they don't treat you right the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, that's your issue. You need to stop blaming someone else for treating you that way. And you need to look in the mirror and you need to ask that person, what is it about you that's giving other people permission to treat you that way? People are only going to treat you the way you give them permission to treat you. Now, one reason why forgiveness is so difficult is because forgiveness isn't a natural process. You know what the natural process is when someone hurts you? You hurt them back. That's the natural process. The saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. Forgiveness isn't a natural process. It is a supernatural process. And you cannot perform this kind of a supernatural process with natural ability. You need supernatural ability. And this is one of the reasons why you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Because when you open up your life and you ask Christ to come into your life, the Bible tells us his Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And your body now actually becomes the temple of God's Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, that God is going to give you the supernatural ability to do those things that in your natural self you simply cannot do, which is to truly forgive and let it go. Now, there's one very powerful and one very moving moment in the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. It's in verse 28. And here it says that the father left the celebration, he came out, and he pleaded with his son to come in. He pleaded with him to come in. And if you go back and you read this parable, you will see that this is where the story ends. We never know if that, if that older brother comes in or not. You see, in our human way, when we read a story like this, we like to have closure to things. We want to have a happy ending. 
So we'll imagine that that older brother says, yeah, dad, you're right. And he, he goes into the celebration. He's reunited with his brother and the two of them live happily ever after. But that's not how the parable ends. It ends with the older brother still outside of the celebration. And the father pleading with him to come in. And that's where we're going to end our lesson this morning. Because there's one question that remains unanswered here. And that is, what are you? to do see because I believe the father is pleading with some of you right now he's pleading with you to let go of your anger to let go of your unforgiveness and come into the fullness of what the father has for you the question is will you do it can you can you relate